Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. I always joked on my Marvel film that I was I was the bad guy that lost. So, you know, I was if someone gave my doll to someone, they go, I don't want this doll. He lo- he's a loser. I want Captain Marvel. I'm the guy, I'm the doll that got trodden on and bitten and like, you know, stomped on probably because I lose. <laughs> That's me. There are probably loads of Yon Rogs lying around the place with no head. Jude Law jokes that his role as Yon Rog in Captain Marvel wasn't exactly the most sought after of characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm Janelle Riley. On this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Jude Law and Carrie Coon about their new intimate family drama, The Nest. Coon and Law discuss how they came to the project, balancing indies and blockbusters, and how they've learned from their characters over the years, including, yes, their brushes with the MCU. Also in this episode, Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan discuss their new film, Ammonite. But first, our awards roundtable tackles the latest hot topics on the Oscar trail. It's all on Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Variety Awards Circuit. I'm Clayton Davis, Film Awards Editor here with Jazz Tankang. Hello. Janelle Riley. Very sleepy, Janelle Riley. <laughs> and Michael Schneider, he's awake. I am very awake. And what a difference a week makes. Oh, my God. So what, last what week. Happened? Wait, what? What's going on? <laughs> what did I miss? Wait, was, there, was there something in the news? What? <laughs> yeah. I didn't hear. I was off Twitter. What yeah. happened? You were a well, smart man, yeah. Clayton Four Davis. You're a smart man. landscaping has uh, entered everyone's <laughs> that's, that's collective consciousness. Part. That's yeah. my favorite part of the whole thing. You couldn't write that in a movie. No. The Four I, Seasons Total Landscape. That, 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 that chef's kiss. Yeah. No, no. Came no up with that. Dave Mandel would have gotten notes from the HBO execs. Like, yeah, like, no, no presidential campaign. Like, would ever do this. campaign would do this. Would, would confuse far. the Four Seasons Hotel with Four Seasons Landscape. 100% they would. By the way, but we the, still I still need that TikTok. I still need that story. Someone to <laughs> blow by blow how that happened. Where uh, did Giuliani oh. go to the porn store next door after things yeah. wrapped? Come on, Claudia yeah. Conway. We know you have the answers. Just get it yeah, out there. Got- we know you do. I'm sure she someone has, has done a Veep, t- a Veep uh, music over that press conference, right? I haven't oh. seen it, but it's it's inevitable. <laughs> if they haven't, I'll do that right after this. Thank you. Get on that. <laughs> Mike, the do best you have, thing. Do- oh, good. Go ahead, Jess, please. Oh, sorry. 
I was going to say the best thing is if you start, if you put four seasons into Google, the first thing that actually comes up is four seasons total landscaping over wow. the four seasons hotel, which is yeah. brilliant. The uh, four seasons, I liked how they released a statement immediately saying it wasn't them. And I was yeah. like, they literally like, were like, take our name they're, out of your like, hell no. Mouth. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mike, do you ever get really depressed that Veep is not on television right now? Like, with all this going on, or was it? Just, or would it just hit too close to home? Well, the problem is, I don't know. Veep would work now, right? What? I mean, it's it's yeah. it's sort of now that reality has so far surpassed the the satire. I, I think, and that was the problem with that final season of Veep, honestly, and and yeah. why it, it it sort of ended on on sort of a quiet note is mm-hmm. is reality had become so much more absurd and and yeah. tragic than the hilarity of of this could never happen on Veep. Well, it all did happen and worse. <laughs> so I, I wonder, like, one day maybe I'll have to do a rewatch of Veep. Is it still funny? Does it still hold up? Or yeah. did the absurdity of real life sort of ruin the legacy of that show? <laughs> ruin or improve? Yeah. yeah, but but now I mean we're, we're you know we we joke, but there there is sort of this weight that I think's been lifted off of a lot of folks, including mm-hmm. us, but including a lot of folks in Hollywood as well. And it does now bring up a question, how does this change uh, our outlook on the world, including awards, uh, but just in general? Uh, you know, there's still a pandemic. Uh, you know, there, there's reports that maybe we'll have a vaccine in the coming months, which is also great news. But for now, at least, you know, the world is sort of coming down. He hasn't, Trump hasn't gone away. He's, he's going to be bloviating for the next several months straight into January and who knows even after. So he's still going to be sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the room. But, but nonetheless, how do you think this maybe changes our world, including this world of, of awards in in the coming months? Yeah, I weirdly, I, the one category I kept an eye on, on in terms of how it could shift or change in its dynamic was documentary feature, which was kind of weird. Because I was like some, because there was a lot of political stuff that that's going to come out this year. Some of it was going to be too close to home. Some of it also was going to be either I want to say outdated or just you know depending on how it went could really put a sour taste in people's mouths. Um, I think the election has had a great effect on something like All In, the fight for democracy, because Stacey Abrams is the hero of the moment, especially when it comes to the state of Georgia. Um, and then we look at things like Boy State and John Lewis Good Trouble, but then something like Totally Under Control that takes a look at the pandemic and how it all unraveled, you know, depending on where we are again, I guess in January, we'll kind of have that uh, effect. But that was my initial jump with it. All yeah. I know is uh, whoever cut together the Avengers ending and superimposed like Biden's face and John Lewis's face on Ant-Man, that is my, um, that's who I'm pushing for best picture. That thing <laughs> want- made me cry harder <laughs> than anything I've seen this year. I want the SNL one that had the bye-bye the, with Biden's oh, yes, face. That, that was yes. also very, very good. Yeah. Assuring them out, bye-bye, yes, yeah. Bye-bye. Some so great good. memes. Let's like let's let's give an Oscar for memes. That's oh, memes yeah. are great this year. Totally. You, you saw the, the A New Hope versus uh, Empire Strikes Back versus Return of the Jedi. 
Spotify meme, right? Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like that only because Empire is my favorite of the Star Wars. Well, yes, so yes. I was like, I, I don't want to own this. But I right. Yeah, at first, I was like, oh, it's implying that Donald Trump was imp, and then I was like, no, it's just, just yeah. go by the titles, and it works. Because I, I had the same visceral reaction. Yeah, I was like, yeah, oh. this is true. This is true. I could see that, but I'm funny with, nonetheless. I'm with you. I'm with you on the Avengers Endgame for best picture. I, I, I still don't get the Sean Connery oh, appearance. Yeah, yeah. But everything else was great and it was just, it made me laugh, it made me cry. Yeah, totally best picture, best <laughs> editing too. Um, There's a few things I could have nitpicked about who was who and such and such, but yeah. overall it was, it was great. Yeah. Uh, but I do agree with Clayton. I definitely think was Stacey Abrams being such a, a key part to the narrative, especially for Georgia. I think all in the fight for democracy is definitely Definitely got a, a, you know, a bump over the last week. Definitely the weekend. There's been so many articles that have come out about Stacey Abrams and everything she's done. So I feel like All in the Fight for Democracy, which is currently streaming on Prime Video, directed by Liz Garbus and uh, Lisa Cortez, got a huge bump over the weekend. And it probably will do through to January because of the Georgia Senate race, um, the runoffs. So if ever a documentary. And that, and that will happen right around when the shortlist is going to be down and stuff. So it it affected documentary, I think the the most, and then certain films, like something like trial of Chicago seven, I wonder how that is going to like kind of fly in or out now Um, because it felt very timely and it still, it is, it still is timely. Um, but you know, there is this kind of like just after effect. Um, but like I said, it's five more months to go and anything can happen in the next five months. And you but, don't want to be the documentary front runner right now because yeah. it never ends up mm-hmm. getting nominated. Yep. It's like, right. you want to be in that number two or three slot, you know, mm-hmm. ask yeah. the Mr. Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ask Jane. Ask Jane. Jane yeah. yep. <laughs> if you're number one, oh. it's not a good place to be. Are we going to talk about Jane? I think, isn't this the second time we've mentioned Jane in our podcast and like... The documentary? Think, did we? I don't think so. Oh, I don't know. Are you yeah. doing po- yeah. side podcasts? And I know, Jasmine. <laughs> talk, who are you talking Jasmine. to, Jasmine, about Jane? Jane <laughs> spin-off podcast. I know. Uh, Jazz and um, Jane. I know, doing a little plug there. Whatever. Yes, Mike, <laughs> yeah. next question for yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I think this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I will be TV guy and, and jump in and say, I do wonder, and this is going way into the future because we're talking about next year, what this is going to mean for the talk shows and how, you know, it, it, will things settle down at all? Will we be able to return to pre-Trump where the talk shows were moving toward more of a variety show format where it was about, uh, you know, the things that say James Corden was doing uh, or, uh, even Fallon was doing. Uh, do, do we see a flip back or does politics still dominate 2021? And how does that impact that world? Yeah, um, I, think, I, think it's, it's, it, I think it's going to depend also on uh, how uh, entrenched, I guess, Trump still is even after the fact. Like if he's still tweeting like daily, but but people are ignoring it for the most part, I think they can go back to their normalcy. Mm-hmm. But if he's still like, in the headlines, like Trump says this about Biden in his fifth month of the presidency, you know, like then, yeah. well, then I think they're going to have to stick with it for a little bit because he monster and all, he is a ratings guy for them. 
Yeah, and that's where it's also going to come down to the news media, yeah. you know, cable yeah. news especially. Are they going yeah. to be willing to give up their Trump addiction? And I don't know if they are, you know. Obviously, CNN, Jeff Zucker, it's, you know, he's all about the ratings. And as long as he can keep, you know, punching those ratings by by focusing on Trump and, and his his uh, crew, then who knows? But dear God, I, I hope that we can all move on. Yeah. I'm sure we've all seen that um, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode where the billboards come to life. And if I may <laughs> offer any advice, it's just don't look, just don't look. Just let the bad <laughs> yes. go away and f- yeah. just ignore his Twitter account. Yeah. Don't watch him on TV. Just uh, yeah. unfollow him. Yeah. Who yeah. Him? Does yeah. anyone here follow him? I, I, I don't. No. Follow, I, I had a principle. I, never I don't did. follow him. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I, blo- I block him. I purposely block him Brilliant. so that, you know, I don't even see when people retweet him, I don't see the tweets. And, uh, and that was just a, you know, that was one of those self care moves I did a year or two ago because mm. it's. So, Mike, you must think I'm just spewing nonsense out there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what context I'm talking to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, again, I may have to do the same with Megan Kelly soon, but that's oh, another yeah. story. Yeah. So, um, speaking of moving on, why don't we move on to something a little grander? Uh, and, uh, you know, one of our recent covers, the legend, Sophia Loren, the legend. Mm-hmm. Ah, mm. uh, Sophia, Miss Sophia. Uh, her, oh. so her movie, The Life Ahead, opens this week. It's or opens. It, it's going to be available for streaming on Netflix. I don't say an opening. Actually, we're going to have movie theaters right now. Um, but it's a very, very, very good performance from her. Arguably one of her most challenging roles, I put it that way. It's been her most challenging as, a, as an actress. And, you know, she it, her, she spans a lot of decades uh, you know, in, in the business, but it's a very, very touching film. I was actually very surprised by how moving it was. And, and it's all, also 94 minutes, which by the way, oh, bravo! yeah, you, you get yes. two and a half stars out of me <laughs> at 90 minutes. I don't care if you're a snuff <laughs> film at that point, like That's you're getting, fantastic. You're getting some type of good word for me. So yeah, it's 94 minutes. It's, it's right to the point. It's very charming and she's very, very good in it. I think she's uh best actress is very competitive this year. But I think she has a, uh, a chance, and I currently have her predicted in my top five. Uh, whether that's in stains, that's again, you know, we have five more months left, and uh, she will make his- history as the oldest nominee ever in Best Actress if she's nominated. She, mm. She's 86. She'll be Emmanuel Riva from Amore. It was beautiful. Uh, like you said, Clayton, like it was so tightly, like the story was just tightly woven together and um Ibrahima Guye, sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly, mm. plays Momo, the refugee kit, uh the the refugee boy who strikes up this really un you know, this friendship with her character, um, Madame Rosa. And they're just the way they connect. And this kid, he holds his own against Sophia Loren and I think that was just so powerful, but yeah, she was, she was great. Um, and I do have to say Diane Warren's song at the end that she wrote, uh, for the film is actually in Italian. It's a return to her ballad, the power ballad. I know we're talking about best actors, but sorry, I have to give Diane a shout out. We can always talk about Diane Warren. Don't you apologize. How many nominations is Diane Warren in? 11. 11. So 
Oh, yeah, it would be, I mean, you know, but I don't want to see her lose to Wuhan flu. <laughs> I mean, I, I do and I don't. Yeah, it's, oh my God, what a, what a, what a time we live in that that's going to be a real possibility. Uh, oh, Diane Warren is, she's always, she's always like right there with, listen, and she was right there within reach. And she has four, three, three songs this year that she's going to uh, have in contention. And this is definitely the best of the three that will put her in yeah. It reminds me of uh, Danny Elfman once said something like they could have a category best Danny Elfman score and I still wouldn't win. Like Diane Warren <laughs> yep. fill up that whole category and they'd, they'd still give it to Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. No shade on Wuhan flu. I love that song. And as everyone knows, I love Yaya Ding Dong. So. <laughs> you were precious cargo. Janelle Riley. Oh my God. <laughs> precious. And I should say. I'm, I'm not sitting here praising Sophia Loren because I haven't seen the movie. In fact, when people kept talking about it for a split second, I thought they were talking about life itself. Mm. And they were like making jokes. With Oscar like, Isaac? Yeah. From last year. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm very happy to hear that 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 that, that um, dead horse is dead and we're not beating it anymore. Mm. And there's actually <laughs> a, another movie that sounds lovely that I will check out this week. Yeah. But, but I'm but, yeah, really excited for Very good. It, it is nice to see the legends being recognized. And I feel like we, we've, we've been seeing that a lot lately in both film and TV. So, so some of the, you know, despite Hollywood's uh, ageism problem through the years that we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, some, some movement there in, in sort of recognizing, uh, you know, some, some of the legendary talent, uh, yeah, again, just, featured in our legends issue of Variety. Yeah, and just just an interesting fact, uh, or fact or observation rather, and I think Janelle, we've spoken about this uh, offline, is that this year the director race skews younger than usual, but the acting races, yeah, and how it breaks, we could mm-hmm. have like the oldest averaged, uh, average age for an acting winner if it goes like the way that we think it could go just a ton of 70 plus year olds <laughs> like in the top one or two you know this year it's going to be very uh interesting to watch as the, this new academy comes through that the legends are getting rewarded and awarded um it's just it's just an observation I've been, I've been keeping. Yeah. And, and I know I just lauded the, uh, the Academy and, and Hollywood for recognizing the, the older uh, performers, but also, okay. Boomers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, boomers. Know. It's, it's maybe it's time. Yeah. You know, I, I know, I know we have yet another boomer president. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> they're never, they're never leaving. The boomers are never leaving guys. But I will say it's, yeah. it's nice that some of these older performers, it's, it's not just that they're legends it's that they're turning in amazing performances. Mm. I know you're sick of hearing me talk about Anthony Hopkins, but like the performance of his career in the father. Absolutely. And I don't say that lightly. Yeah. And, and, oh, yeah. and it's a very, very, it's kind of something I want to see just because it would be kind of funny just for 10 seconds. But if Anthony Hopkins wins and let's just pretend for a second, Sophia Loren won, like would they give it to Anthony Hopkins before her so he can hold the record for like literally five minutes until they gave it to <laughs> Sophia Loren? Because if Anthony Hopkins wins, he's the oldest winner ever. Wow. Uh, in, oh in an God. acting category. So uh, right now the current uh, in best actor uh, Henry Fonda has the record at 76. So he's going to beat Henry Fonda's record just for the nomination. Cause we all feel very confident that the nomination's happening. 
uh, I won't use the L word yet, but everyone else can. But uh, locked. Uh, yeah. locked. Hashtag locked. Yeah, but you know, if he, if he wins, he becomes like the oldest winner ever. Like, just wow. a, lot, a lot of stuff is happening there. Oh, can you? Imagine? And then Ellen Burstyn too. Ellen Burstyn can break oh, the record fantastic. for pizzas of a woman. Yeah, like everyone's breaking records. They're gonna have to really configure the show in a way that we can like <laughs> properly like monitor the record breaking. Really messing up my trivia. I know. Thank yeah. you. Although, yeah. although we do, you know, those of us in the media, we love the trends. And if this, mm-hmm. this, that, that story writes itself. Three minutes oh, yeah. trend. That's, that's. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to write the variety headline for five minutes and then immediately change it seconds yeah. later after this ceremony <laughs> is happening. Anthony Hopkins make breaks yeah, records. Breaks record. Around. Done. Breaks record breaking. Breaks record. Break <laughs> All right. So speaking of Sophia Loren, break down uh, best actress for us. Ah, uh, so. Uh, she is the quote unquote oldest, uh, person in contention at at the moment, but this can all change. Obviously. Uh, I see this as a three horse race right now. Again, changing between, uh, Vanessa Kirby for pieces of a woman, Francis McDormand Mm -hmm. for nomad land and Viola Davis for rainy. I am sorry. You No, yeah. Uh, Now some people will also say Michelle Pfeiffer. And I acknowledge that as a possibility. I have said to myself, and I'm going to hold to it just for a little while longer. I think if I have her in my thought, I think if she's in, she wins. And if she's not in, if if I don't think she's going to win, I'm just going to leave her out of the five for the moment. But that's just where I stand at the moment. But I see that kind of being the, the race as it stands on, you know, time of recording, November 9th, 2020. Oh, I just, no, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because I think if Michelle gets in, she'll have the she's overdue narrative, right? Because Viola won, Viola's won, Frances McDormand's won. But then again, there is also Vanessa Kirby, but I I agree with you, Clayton. I think if Michelle Pfeiffer gets in, she will. Do you, I think she'll win, but I think she'll be the only nomination from French Exit. Like I, French Exit is not getting best picture. Mm -hmm. Lucas is not getting an acting performance, yeah. an acting nomination. Yeah. No, no, you're, you're, that's, that's, that's a very, yeah, I, I don't, French Exit's best shot at another nomination will probably be adapted screenplay and that's going to be a long yeah. shot. So, I mean, the way that I have my five structured right now, Vanessa Kirby is the only non-winner in the lineup. Mm-hmm. So w- once that starts happening, uh, you know, then you have to say, okay, the person who doesn't win, who doesn't have one yet, they might go that way, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they yeah. just no. don't care. <laughs> this is my thing. First of all, I adore Michelle Pfeiffer. I don't mm-hmm. think she people view her as overdue in the sense they do like Glenn Close or when Julianne Moore won. Yeah. Um, I think we still think she's got a lot more opportunity. She hasn't been nominated in a really long time. 27 um, years. Yeah. Vanessa mm-hmm. Kirby is what the Academy has tri- traditionally gone for. Somebody they see as new, a performance you cannot deny. The first 30 minutes of that movie are is one long unbroken shot of her giving birth it's stunning she's stunning throughout the movie um and she's young younger i would say and beautiful and you know it's interesting when you look at the average age of the male best actor winner and then you look at people like jennifer lawrence and charlie Mm -hmm. theron when they won like i just think I, i think combined with her performance vanessa kirby is probably your 
front runner. Are we allowed to say the F word? I know we don't say the. We can L say front. No, we okay. can say front runner. It's always front runner at the moment, you know. Okay, front runner at the mo- moment. There gonna be multiples, but no, but not lock. Up, yeah, not a lock. Yeah, don't want to say that word. Uh, the interesting thing that you say, Janelle, that that is uh, a difference that I've spoken about, spoken about over the last few years. Best actor, I think, average age is about forty-two, wow. while the average best actress age is about thirty-one or thirty-two. There's like a 10 year difference. That's why it was such a big deal that I don't know if anyone remembers when Eddie Redmayne won. Yeah. Like, that was a really big deal because, first of all, he looks 14 and he oh, it still does. And when he won, he was 32 at the time. And they don't do that typically. Mm-hmm. You know, Adrian Brody right now is still the youngest best actor winner. He was 29, yeah. who, by the way, went up against four other previous winners in that category. And it was a shock when he won for the So team. you're saying Vanessa Kirby is this year's Adrian Brody? Uh, if she's going, who, who won Best Actor last year? I completely forgot her. Walking Phoenix. I mean, she's going to kiss uh, Walking Phoenix on stage when she wins. Oh, pay and for that. that would, and he just yeah. had a baby. That won't be cool. <laughs> so, full circle. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I think, I think, but there, there's a lot of uh, fluidity there. But other uh, contenders, uh, we spoke about Sophia Loren uh, doing some damage. Meryl Streep, if she is in fact going lead for the prom, I always say don't bet against Meryl. But you never know. Um, Carrie Mulligan, I think, is still very much in the conversation. I agree. Woman. Yeah. Yeah. She's, <sighs> she's wonderful as a performance unlike anything else, I think, in the race. Have you seen it, Jazz? Yeah, the movie? Yes, I, I saw it. That was like the last time I saw before. Me too. Before the lockdown. Oh, and somebody was, was coughing in the movie theater and I was getting really <laughs> angry. <laughs> oh, there, well, now you know what was happening. Yeah. Uh, also, by the but, way. Yeah, um, don't I, count out. Well, I was like, Carrie Mulligan, do you guys, do, do you, do you ladies think that the movie may have a bit of trouble with the ending without giving any spoilers away? Uh, short answer. No, no. Okay. In my, in my opinion, I've, yeah. I've heard that. I must say, I agree with yeah. that. I just yeah, heard yeah. that bunch and I wasn't sure if others felt that way. Well, it's also interesting. I've heard that conversation. You have, yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, but I think it might be one of these things that were, making a bigger deal of then I think there's enough people who are going to appreciate the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with Julia Garner and the assistant, like another <laughs> sort of touchy subject matter. I want it you know? so bad oh, for she's her. So she's so yeah. great. Yeah. And I have to throw out because, you know, um, I'm a big fan and actually I believe she's this week's guest. Carrie Coon in the nest is yeah. delivering a beautiful mm. performance yeah. that I would love to see get yeah. recognized. And one more dark horse contender. I don't know if you guys have seen herself. Starring Claire Dunn, who also yes. the script. Beautiful, beautiful movie. So small. Just like yeah. so, so, such a small little thing. Those are the, the little things that you hope that the Academy can discover in this weird time. Yeah. Everyone Jazz, I know who's say? seen herself so, loves it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, no, I would say definitely don't count out Carrie Mulligan. I think she definitely could be a dark horse just because. Like I said, that film was the last movie. I think I was talking to you, Janelle, in the office about it. Like, I'm going to go off and see see the movie. Um, and her performance and that nurse outfit that I think we've seen yep. in the trailer. At, like, I cannot forget her performance. And, I, you know, we've seen so much between, you know, March 13 and now. And her performance still resonates with me. 
That's, um, that's that's my Halloween costume next year. You better get ready. That next costume. year, you're so late. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so I, I couldn't wear it this year. No one would know what I was talking about. <laughs> oh, isn't that the worst? I wanted to go as Dolomite last year in the oh, yeah. purple velvet <laughs> yeah. suit, but it hadn't really come out. That would have been awesome. Yeah. That's like when you did your else the OG, your... Your L- oh LCMG yes, when I, I went as um outfit, Jeremy right? Strong, Kendall. yeah, as Kendall Boy, <laughs> and some people got it, most people didn't. It, it didn't help that I went to a Marvel Heroes party, but um over the weeks following Halloween, I would get texts from people saying, "I finally understand your Halloween." Great <laughs> <laughs> um, gratification. Yeah, I know, yes. right? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Other bits, uh, Kate Winslet and Ammonite, which uh, which they just mm-hmm. uh, shifted the release date uh, a, a tad, I think, today, but not out of the awards window. Like it, they just announced that it's going to be doing theaters and uh, on demand. So, yeah, which Kate we, is also we, on this week's yeah. episode, by the way. So stay tuned for, for her. Always oh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Moss, I think, is still in the conversation. Double Threat uh, for Shirley and The Invisible Man. Also, probably one of the last movies some people saw in an actual theater. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they're really mean to horror films sometimes. But I think Shirley may uh, be able to do some some damage with her. Uh, we still don't know about Andrew Day in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Still, yeah. the one, that's the one waiting in the wings. Big question mark. Yep. Uh, Amy Adams and Hillbilly Elegy. I haven't uh, seen it. You guys have seen it. I haven't. Yep. And we are under embargo, and I'm going to honor that oh, embargo. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I think she's appropriately ranked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, can I just can I can I just uh, put a prayer out there for Yuri Han in Minari? Oh, who plays yes. the wife? Yeah. Like again, one of those that I feel like no one's going to listen to us, but. If you're if you're voting for Stephen Yun, which is really a possibility to happen, she is not a bad choice. Like she is, I, 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 arguably, I think she's stronger than he is in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I think she gives the best performance in that film. I don't know if I agree yeah. with stronger than Stephen, hmm. but she's freaking fantastic. Yeah, and, that, and that, by the way, they also said that Steve, I think Stephen. They all are. Yeah, they're all great. It's a great ensemble. They all are. So if we're doing prayers, then mine is going to be for Rashida Jones for On the Rocks. <laughs> mine yep. is going to be Sienna Miller for Wander Darkly. Ooh, yeah. good. That's or good. Carrie Coon. I already mentioned Yeah, yeah. but yeah. Uh, All right. Mike, well, I, I, like Mike, this, I like this new segment. Prayer uh, uh, yeah, 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 Mike, <laughs> give us, Mike, give us a, a, a prayer. Did you see Emma, Mike, uh, during the dark time? During the dark, the dark times? The dark times? Uh, no, but here, no. who? Let me see who my prayer is, because I love Rashida as well. Um, And I thought she was probably better than that film. Um, Michael. So so I'm just going to give a shout out to Rashida as well. Prayer prayer Uh, for her. Yeah. Uh, Oh, good. Good. I was going to say, you've seen Wild Mountain Time, right? I have. Emily Blunt? Yes. Emily, get it. Emily. She will be a great Golden Globe nominee. And... Okay. Uh, this isn't her, her time's coming. I think she's going to be that. Uh, I'm trying to think of a really good awards, like comparison. I think almost she is like maybe Kate Blanchett in the late nineties, like Kate Blanchett got in for Elizabeth and then it took like forever. It felt like it took forever to get her that second nomination for the aviator. Emily Blunt's time is coming soon. And I think her first nomination is going to be her win, which is going to be weird because she should have a few by now. Yes, she should. Um, yes. But she does. She does a great accent in Wild Mountain Time, though. So that doesn't 
besmirch that like she is not good in it. She's a great actress, but I don't think this is it for her. Uh, I think also um, Radha Blank in 40 Year Old Virgin is so good. And I really hope hope the Globes come to her aid. Um, But that's going to be kind of wishful thinking. Uh, Sydney Flanagan in Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, I think is really good. Um, I think she's young. So that they've talked about best actress age, you know, being younger. There's almost too young sometimes that they, and she's, I think, under that. But I also cross my fingers for Jesse Buckley for I'm Thinking of Ending Things. But I feel like I'm the only one that still talks about that today. Well, I always talk about Jesse Buckley. Oh, but not the movie. Three years, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I talked about the movie yesterday. Yeah. There oh, you good. Go. You, once a day, it makes me feel good. I'm still totally trying to figure it out. There. You're still trying to figure it out. <laughs> You're not I'll get alone. There. I'll get there. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, we've said our prayers. Uh, so we pray a lot probably time to, to get to our uh, amazing guests this week so and carrie coon and jude law uh, uh shout out to carrie coon forever oh Just, my gosh they're both yeah you, I mean, I, master class in acting check out anything carrie coon forever forever my uh my old my old writer that worked with me uh went to high school with carrie coon and like we're like friends and stuff but I used to make fun of him and say that she didn't like him and went off to become a movie star <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then become amazing. So that's. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. No leftovers is definitely worth another watch rewatch at some point. Just mm-hmm. again, I'll, 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 I am. Did you like it? Oh, I loved it. Mm. Loved it. One of the greatest TV shows yeah. of all yeah. time, which people I'll, were I'll, telling me for years. I'll still bang the drum that I think she deserved the nomination for gone girl. I really thought she was great in that movie. Of course. Yeah. 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 Anything Carrie Coon. Prayers yeah. for Carrie Coon. All right. We, we got to jump. So. Nam <laughs> That's that Angela Bassett. What's up got to do with the reference? Just to throw that out there. <laughs> and that's what we're ending with. All right. We'll see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Janelle Riley. Though they had never worked together prior to The Nest, Carrie Coon and Jude Law have much in common. They are both actors' actors with a devotion for the stage, and both are Marvel action figures. The Nest is worlds away from the Marvel Universe, an intimate family drama set in the 1980s, starring Coon and Law as a couple whose already fragile marriage begins to unravel when they move from America to an isolated home in England. You're embarrassing. And you're exhausting. I paid our rent. I paid for Ben's school. I bought you a car. I bought you a horse. I paid for construction on your barn. You're delusional. I'll make money for us. For us? It's not for us. It's so you can go to fancy parties and tell people we have horses. For the first time in years, I feel worthwhile. I feel powerful. You're a poor kid pretending to be rich. We don't have any friends here. We don't have any family. What does it matter so much to you? Because I deserve this! The sophomore feature from Martha Marcy May Marlene filmmaker Sean Durkin, The Nest almost feels like a horror movie with its gothic location and sense of foreboding. I recently spoke to Coon and Law about The Nest. They spoke about the film and how they incorporate physicality into their characters, including how Coon had to learn horseback riding for this role. We began by discussing their desire to work together and what brought both of them to The Nest. I met Jude, I've told the story before, but I actually met him at a brunch the day after Brexit in London at a, our friend Rose Garnett's house. She was a producer of The Nest. And it was it was his first time out with his new baby. <laughs> so he was sort of 
very vulnerable actually when I met Sean mm. and come to find out that that Rose had actually had designs to get us together ultimately for the nest but we didn't know she was playing a long game so it was I, I think we had a couple of then more professional meetings after that about some other projects and then finally uh, they approached me about it and uh, I read it and I had never seen marriage portrayed that way it just felt like a really truthful examination of the tacit agreements we make in a marriage and it felt like an egalitarian relationship in a way that I hadn't seen dealt with in the, you know, in the 80s. It was truly a, a, you know, an, a co-lead as opposed to just a supporting part. And then we had to find somebody who would make the movie with us so it would get made. Because <laughs> my participation alone wouldn't do that. So we approached Jude Law. <laughs> um, well, you know, it, it, the, the, these... They, they, they tend to be familiar uh, paths. You, you, you know of someone's work, of course, and admire them from afar and make sort of secret notes in your head of, gosh, I wish I could work mm -hmm. with that person or I want to work with this person. But you also are aware that business is such that you can't always force that. You have to wait for it to be the right time and the right part and for the stars to align and the, the currents to meet and all of those things. And um, so this was just a situation where knowing Sean's work uh, and uh, admiring it, as I just said, from afar, I got, I got this wonderful script and um, it was pretty clear from the get go that it was going to be a really interesting process to embark on a really interesting part to try and breathe life into and to understand and a really interesting relationship between, between Rory and Alison to try and get involved in and, 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 uh, and flesh out. And Sean just seemed to be the most uh, engaged and gentle and uh, patient and collaborative soul and, we worked a little bit on, on Rory. I was a bit concerned at the beginning that when I read it, that um, he was uh, he was quite highly unlikable in the first uh, draft I read. Um, and it seemed to me that you had to be complicit with him somewhat. And so we, we worked on that and working on that was great fun. And then uh, I was, you know, Carrie and I and, and Sean all met up and that went very well. And it was, it was just, you know, it's not a it's not an unfamiliar tale of how it came together. It was yeah. a very happy one, and it was a very easy is the wrong word. It was easy in one in one way, um, and then the work was the work. The work was always fulfilling, challenging, but all the best kind of fulfilling and challenging. Um, yes. And yeah. it certainly felt from the get go. You mentioned Rose. There was. A, a very supportive team around us mm -hmm. and Una and Charlie who play our kids were very much a part of that too. Um, yeah. So really what I'm doing is I'm writing one of those love letters that everyone else reads. <laughs> for, oh, they always say that. Actors but always it's true. Say it it is really true. Very, <laughs> it really was a happy uh, uh, experience. Mm -hmm. Albeit, as you rightly pointed out, kind of scary and weird <laughs> and dark. <laughs> Which Sean's movies are, I mean, he's got a, such a specific vocabulary and it's very much a Sean Durkin movie from top to tail. And they say, was, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say it was interesting how the script had 
a, a really strong sense of the Gothic, that the house mm-hmm. in the script was even more um, of a character that was sort of devouring this family and tricking them and, and playing tricks on them. And it really wasn't until hindsight that people have mentioned these themes in this sort of underbelly that I remembered that because of course we, our concerns on a day-to-day basis was bringing the family to life and making the family real and the twists and the turns of the family real. Um, but th- that, that, that Gothic, that sort of dark underbelly was, was always there. And he's just very, very clever at sort of um, letting it, letting it settle. I mean, I really thought for a while it was going to be a haunted house movie because you move to this gothic mansion. And then there's even a, a scene where she's like, who's leaving these doors open? And I was like, oh, a ghost yeah. is going to jump out at any second. That's going to be the twist. And truthfully, watching this marriage unravel was was kind of more horrifying than, than any ghost story, I think. And mm-hmm. I, I just have to imagine, like, even when you know you're doing good work with good people, um, that can't be fun. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was a lot of levity on set. There was a lot of levity on set because we we really did or, organically connect. And, and the kids are so magnificent. They're very fine actors and they're really just solid young people. And we were in this astonishing setting in the English countryside. All of that was really wonderful. And there were horses mm-hmm. and and I've never been, I don't, I can't speak for Jude, of course. Jude will speak for Jude, but I've never been an actor who has trouble shaking off what, what a scene is because in my view, actors are very healthy people because we get to be fully expressed. And so when you have work that is specifically written and satisfying to do, then I feel at the end of the day, I feel very, um, clear sort of very free also i had a tiny baby and i was that i was alone with and we were working and i would just go home and pass out wake up and see him and go to work so i didn't have time to be too uh preoccupied with allison and also you know from scene to scene all you're thinking about is what does my character want and what is what are they trying to do to get it and do they get it and when you're thinking about the brass tacks that way i i'm not overly concerned with theme right or you know whether or not we're executing that in the moment jude I, I, I think it's such a, a, a relief to hear another actor say that, that for some reason over time, you know, if you go back sort of 20 years when, when, when actors were required to really start talking about their process and they were talking <laughs> about the research they did and you felt kind of guilty if you didn't do any research, you had to make up some book you'd read, right? Whatever happened to an actor just walking on with a great script right. it work? Like that's what our job is. And the same thing about like, oh, you don't live the part all the time. Like, no, I go home. I got kids. I got to make right. dinner and then get them to school. And, but but th- with this, it was it, it, that that doesn't distract from the attention and focus and commitment and total kind of. Uh, here's the thing. I remember coming into those, so I'm, I'm, I'm remembering all of it, but specifically those ha- that house in the UK. No, from the get-go, the house that we shot at in Toronto too, or outside Toronto, there was a great sense of trust. And I think when there's trust, there can be levity because you, you're, mm. you're playing and you can be playing at killing each other. You can be playing at, uh, uh, you know, an, 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 an unearthing the, the, the deepest, darkest kind of sides of your character or, or the relationship that your um, character's in. But, but the levity is, is, God, wow, this is, 
this is right. We're in the right area here. And that can also, that can be a great purge and, and a great mm-hmm. um, relief. And then you go home and you have to get sort of match fit for the next day. Um, yeah. Yep. I agree. Trust. That's a really good point because I find when I feel most insecure on a set or stressed, it's because decisions are being made in a way that feels arbitrary and there's nothing arbitrary in Sean's process. It's, mm-hmm. it's all very well constructed and very specific. These are very flawed characters and Rory is, um, you know, someone who's sort of living beyond his means, who isn't mm-hmm. being honest about who he is. And mm-hmm. some people might look at that and kind of not like him. And for me, I, I empathize with him. And I think a lot of people will see themselves in these mm-hmm. characters as well. And I'm wondering if there are characters specifically, you know, maybe in this case, th- these characters where um, you learn from them as a person. You think like, that's not what I want to be. Or maybe, you know, playing somebody, you're, you're like, I want to be more like that person. Absolutely. It's our job to, uh, to, to look into this expanse of the character and I've, I, I, I'm trying to think of good examples. I think you put it really well in how you asked the question. I don't know that it's as specific as, I mean, other than skills, you know, sometimes you have to learn to play an instrument or, or, or ride a mm-hmm. bike or ride a horse, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a wonderful thing to, to be, um, to, be uh, uh, to have to do um, for the job. I, I, I think the way you put it was, was, was more generous, though, in the question, which is, you know, you, you learn from them in... More often than not, I think I've learned from playing people that I think, gee, I'm, I really, I'm, I'm really glad I didn't handle my life like this, or I'm really glad that I'm, I'm facing up to this part of my past, you know, or as, as a warning sign because, because you're, you're going into an area of darkness um, that you have to, you have to empathize with, you have to sympathize with the person, you can't judge them, you have to go in seeing them as whole and and really recognizing why they're in that place um but but that's the same that's the same with other characters i'm trying to think of oh yeah you know funny things too just even in in the embodiment of a character i remember i don't know why i found myself role after role for a while really getting into the physicality and and maybe to to too much so i kept sort of i just it was just pricking my curiosity I guess and everything led me to a path of like you know how do they walk how do they stand how are they sitting and then and I worried that that was starting to kind of come out too much uh and then I got to play this guy who is a pope with you know incredible power and I realized that the best I could do is find absolute stillness and it was it was wonderfully calming and it it led me to a place of to learn to meditate and I've carried on since and i love that stillness and i i i learned it from lenny the pope who i played Mm -hmm. you know you're really good at playing characters who have to who aren't always self-aware and sort of have to have that moment of reckoning i'm thinking all the way back to like i heart huckabees you know (laughs) the the slickster yeah who has to say like who who am I? How am I not myself? <laughs> How am I not myself? How am I not myself? That's right. The 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 the, the tuna mayo uh, the tuna mayo sandwich scene where he's sick in his hand. Oh God! We know that guy. <laughs> we know him yeah. very well in L.A. <laughs> There's a little bit of Brad stand in in Rory O'Hara. Yes, I absolutely think so. Yeah. And a little yeah. bit of the manager from Fox Lux. 
Yeah. <laughs> you've caught me. You've, you've, you've figured it out. That's my equation. <laughs> I like to think you're most like your character in Spy, though, because that's my second favorite movie of all time. <laughs> and it's... Okay, now you're in my fantasy, you see, because that's who I want to be as well, right? But I, I, neither. I'm none. None of the above. <laughs> Carrie, what about for you? I mean, on one hand, you know, you've, like I said, you've had to play these dark characters, and, mm-hmm. um, but you've also played people with, who with such deep wells of compassion. You know, I would think it would be fun to be in that headspace. I, what, I, I think that what's different for maybe me as an actress coming up is that for whatever reason, whether it's because I, I've always um, played a little older than my age and maybe it's my voice. I mean, I've always sort of played more mature characters than I am, which forced me to actually rise to meet the moment. And for example, you know, playing Nora Durst, you know, the way Nora Durst walks into a room is very different than me. And she came into my life at a time when I was entering the business. I had to learn to take responsibility for the choices I was making and to stand up for myself in a new way as as sort of a small business owner might have to do. And to have to play someone with that backbone, I I really had to learn how to do that. And it it changed, um, it changed the way it changed the way I spoke. My voice got lower just because my posture got better. You know, there were certain actual material things about the way I was moving that were changing. And I, and it took me on a journey, like maybe Jude was talking about with his physicality too, where I was like, Oh, I can't stand up straight. (laughs) I don't know how. And, and it took me on this really to this really physical place where I, you know, was doing a lot of Alexander and a lot of voice work. And that in turn then helped inform the next role I was doing on stage. And now I'm in a show where I am playing in a wrist, and where all of that stuff is culminating in this elegance that I could not have played five years ago. And so I would say the women that I've played, because they're always a little bit more uh, clear and they've taught me how to walk into a room and how to stand up straight. And it's been really instructive as a woman in my 30s, now almost 40, to, be, to have to do that. And Allison was similar because uh, what I learned in the horseback riding, which is not something that had been a big part of my life, is the you can't lie on a horse. You can't, you have to be really settled because they feel everything. Mm-hmm. And they're pack animals. So if you aren't leading, they will find somebody who will, or they'll just take over. And that, whatever that quality was, it was really helpful especially because I was, you know, coming in with not a lot of time to prepare and with a baby and in a foreign country. And I I just had to drop all of that stuff so I wouldn't be anxious around the horses. And that's who Allison is. You know, there's a kind of forthrightness about her and an earthiness about her. You know, she's Rory's tether. And, and it was just, it was such a gift to be able to just sort of have to figure that out because you're, you're riding a horse. And that again, like Jude says, is something you get to carry forward with you into the next thing. And I'm just really grateful for it. It's kind of strange to me because my first exposure to you was as Honey and Who's Afraid mm-hmm. of Virginia Woolf, who is not a confident, assured person who walks into mm-hmm. a room. So I love that like, that's what you tend to be cast as now. That's true. And it's funny because in order to play that part, that was my first role at the Steppenwolf Theater Company, which was sort of the pinnacle of success. You know, to get onto the main stage in Steppenwolf is something that every Chicago theater actor aspires to. And and when you finally get that opportunity, you have to accept that it's the right thing at the right time that you belong in that room. Because if you walk in any other way, you won't be able to make choices. And so, in fact, that journey of becoming a person who uh, believed I was right where I should be kind of started there, even though I was playing a deeply insecure person. And of course, it changed my whole life. You know, it's the only reason I'm sitting here with you all today. 
And you got a husband out of it. So. I sure did. Yep, <laughs> I sure did. Seven years and one baby later. Here we wow. are. <laughs> um, you both uh, uh, are you you appear, you appear in you know big blockbusters, but also you do a lot of indie films. I mean, I'm imagining you know the budgets on uh, the Nest was probably whatever the craft services cost on your Marvel movies. Um, is yeah. that <laughs> is that uh, sort of a conscious choice you make to, to balance the two, or is it just a matter of whatever project attracts you attracts you? And uh, do you feel a difference, you know, on a the set of a blockbuster? versus indies yeah there, i don't know that it's a conscious choice i think there's uh although having said that i think there's clearly a different uh there's a different um relationship because if i do no okay so so for example if you do if, if i do a bunch of indie films sort of one after the other or uh then then there's a there's something often um not grueling but there's something testing about them because you're you are usually facing uh slight challenges and and battles um even if it's just time even if it's just look come on we, we you know even if the pressure's not there because the director and the producers handle themselves um, um, correctly. You know, you you don't necessarily feel the pressure of the schedule, but but at the same time, um, it, there is this wonderful sense of uh, sort of hand to mouth. And sometimes, you know, you you uh, on on a, and on a big film, you don't necessarily have that, but you are perhaps searching for its soul because there's a so there's so many more people. There are so many more. Uh, departments there's there, so you know finding that when the camera turns over and you're trying to just find the truth sometimes it's a little foggier and a little harder on a really big film so both of them in a way of uh, you know you're you're always trying to find the truth you're always trying to find um the honesty and the the accuracy of the character in the scene um i I don't know. I enjoy both. They're definitely both different beasts. I quite like. Sometimes there's a sort of there's there's, there's a there's a, a comfort in the in the scale of big movies, and I, you know I'm doing something at the moment which is enormous with vast sort of uh, 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 period settings and cars and trams and hundreds of extras, and there's a part of me that just looks around like a child, like God, this is this is the movies. This is what it's like to make to make a movie. Um, but then I love the adrenaline of tipping up with just a handful of people on a wet Wednesday morning at 5 a.m. Like going, okay, we've got to get this scene, guys. You know, uh, I, I, I love both. And I, 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 I think it's interesting that both just in the end require you to, to turn it on when the camera rolls. Mm. And, and neither of those bodies around that fact make make it necessarily easier that's always just the point um mm. i guess the truth also is one supports the other you know you can do one and 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 it doesn't matter therefore if you're sort of deferring your fee on the on the on the independent film or you know because you because you want to and you want the pat you 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 thrive i certainly thrive for the passion uh and the commitment that those smaller films require but in the big movies, you get to be an action figure. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Can be. Although I always joked on my Marvel film that I was, 
I was the bad guy that lost. So, you know, I was, if someone gave my doll to someone, they go, I don't want this doll. He lo- he's a loser. I want Captain Marvel. I'm the guy, I'm the doll that got trodden on and bitten and like, you know, stomped on probably because I lose. <laughs> That's me. There are probably loads of yon rogs lying around the place with no head. <laughs> not spoil anything, but you both lose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah Marvel true. movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and mine took about six hours, my part. So <laughs> I don't have the luxury of choice that Jude has. You know, I, I'm I'm still building a career. And so it's interesting because my passion is sort of all I have. <laughs> I have to rely on other people saying yes to me right now. But I look forward to a time when I get to be more intentional about my curation. <laughs> but I totally agree when you say that fundamentally the moment the camera rolls is the same. It's, it's finding the truth of that, whatever that is. And, you know, for me and Marvel, it was not having any scene partners. <laughs> that was the challenge. And, um, and yeah, and then the sort of scrappier films feel like a play, you know, which I, which is certainly where I like to live and where mm. I come from. And I think as a woman where the more interesting stories are being told, and then it's also harder to get those films made. So you may find a script with a really, really compelling female part, but it won't necessarily get financing. And even if it gets made, it won't necessarily get distributed. And I'm coming mm-hmm. up in a time where that's shifting and I'm, I'm hopeful for the next 20 years should I can choose to continue or, uh, but it, there's no guarantee that that's, you know, how quickly that will change. But um, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. Because I've been fortunate enough to see you both on stage multiple times, actually, um, I love the medium of live theater. I love that anything can happen. And I always love to talk about, uh, talk to actors about, um, has anything really funny, horrible, shocking happened to you while you're on stage? Um, and it can be as easy as forgetting your lines, you know, your 300th performance in, or, you know, just something crazy that happened in the audience. I remember being at a play with um, Michael Shannon and uh, a woman threw up over the balcony <laughs> like it was all anyone could talk about. Yeah. Awful. It's just awful. Hmm. I mean, uh, you know, the beauty of theater is that, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, Carrie talked about doing uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf for nearly two years. I did. I, it's the same with Hamlet. I was in Hamlet for nearly 18 months and, and then, and that's just one production and one production for Carrie, you know, you do theater often enough every night there's a kind of you know i remember you know doing a you know weird things have an effect that i remember things like i remember doing a a, a, a eugene o'neill play in this little theater in london called the donmar where when it was a heat wave and you know people were literally passing out because the longer the play went on, it was Eugene O'Neill. It was very intense and passionate and loud, and but it just got hotter and hotter. And people like you could just—I was dripping from the end of my nose, and you know you could hear people like hitting the floor, passing out. I remember things like doing doing plays at the at the Young Vic, where the front row is is you know um, a foot away from you, and we were doing uh, "Tis Pity She's a Whore," and at the end, as as you both probably know, there's everybody dies, everybody gets <laughs> killed and stabbed, and and what was wonderful about the Young Vic was that it was um, brilliant at giving theatre tickets to local um, schools and uh, community groups who had never been to the theatre before. So you get fantastic responses. But these young kids right from South East London 
I sat on the front and suddenly someone's getting stabbed. They're all going, my God, no, man. Oh, my God. Like screaming out. Yeah. Because because they can't believe what they're seeing. They're seeing you know, a woman getting knifed in front of them and blood and and that kind of response, I remember more than the sort of funny stuff. Because, you know, people forget their lines and I've fluffed a couple or bits of scenery fall over. That's kind of part of the deal. What I love is when the the proximity and the and the and the outside world the weather whether it's a storm or a wet Wednesday like I said before or a hot you know boiling hot summer bleeds in and it kind of takes over the performance and or it affects the performance that's the point it's live so it becomes a part of the performance mm-hmm. yeah we do a vets night at Steppenwolf it's uh the night the dress rehearsal before our first preview where we invite veterans to come in and just watch the shows and eat some pizza afterwards. And it's always really fascinating because they are the most vocal, no holds barred audience. Yeah. And they, I remember doing Virginia Woolf and they're just yelling like, boy, George, you know, get her. And they're yelling things like that bitch is drunk. You know, it's just like really responding viscerally in a way that, you know, in Shakespeare's yeah. time would have been completely yeah. acceptable. Absolutely. And then there are nights when, you know, someone's having a chicken dinner on the apron of the stage and you're like, what are you doing here? Or that's a very expensive yeah. nap you're taking, you know, just <laughs> yeah. nights like that, which are sort of horrible, but, uh, or how many times I knocked things off the stage and bug this year. But, uh, I also remember Tracy choking on a cigar in Virginia Woolf and he's got this little speech, you know, it's the, it's the end when they're conjuring the boy and they're sort of casting the spell to just, you know, get rid of the pretend child. And he's supposed to say a swizzle stick, Martha, a swizzle stick. And he just goes, <laughs> swizzle stick. And we all, and all three of us just completely broke. And like, there's nothing you can do, but, but those nights are really fun for the audience. They love a mistake. You know, they, it's so galvanizing when the weather is bad, right? When they're chanting for a show to go on an outdoor theater, even though it's raining, like an American players theater, everybody bring their poncho shows and the, yeah. the show would get called a couple times a night because of rain or lightning but the ones who stick around are so excited to be there and sometimes those are the best nights even though it's kind of a chaos but it's it's fun and in outdoor theater too i remember you know somebody doing a speech but in hamlet and the a bat actually flew around his finger when he said bat you know that kind oh. of synchronicity that happens outside i've always just really yeah. loved it's my favorite that's what makes it so, like you say, it's so unpredictable because the outside is a character, you know, the, the audience is a character. And so you have to be able to take it on. Tracy sees everything. I'm so blessed. I don't notice the things he notices, but he says, you see that woman in the third row? I was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> he just gets irate about all of them. And I, I don't know. We were once when we, when we took, so between London and New York, we took Hamlet to Elsinore and did it outside in the castle mm. uh, uh, square. Oh, and amazing. before we went, we had this reception at the end of the run in London and Derek Jacobi came because he was in the season that, that we had, Hamlet was a part of. And he, he came over and said, dude, darling, you're going to Elsinore. Um, has someone invited the lighthouse keeper? And I, I was like, who? Why? Is that it? What do you mean? Is that a code? He said, no, someone must invite the lighthouse keeper. And I sort of, Passed this on to the director as a joke. And on the opening night, there was this old guy with a huge beard and a big sweater and his wife, who was clearly the lighthouse keeper. And what I found out was that the lighthouse out in the harbour, otherwise the the beam of light keeps coming round and flooding the stage. And so on the night, you have to invite him, give him a free ticket, and he turns off the light. So he turns it off. That's amazing. I know. It, that's a code, you see, for Elsinore, if you ever get to go there. I'll remember. I'll remember that. A 
watched my little baby girl crying to get a bed. Jude, I, I just go. found out that you had a baby girl. Congratulations. Yeah. She's calling to me, so I'm going to go and... Yeah, uh, go. Yes, of course. Tell, tell Philip I said hi. Lots of love and many thanks and best wishes to you. Bye-bye. Thank you guys so Bye. much. Take Bye. care. Bye. The Nest is now available on demand and will be released on DVD and Blu-ray on November 17th. Set on the English coast in the 1840s, the new film Ammonite is loosely based on real-life amateur paleontologist Mary Anning, played by Kate Winslet, and explores a romantic relationship she may have had with another woman, Charlotte Merchinson, played by Saoirse Ronan. Variety's Jazz Tanguay spoke to both Winslet and Ronan in separate interviews about the project. First, Jazz asked Winslet about how she's also branching into producing. I definitely just want to um, suggest I'm not a producer on Ammonite. I was just very much actress for hire, right. which is which is what I've always been for the whole of my 45 years now. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I'm a producer on um, Mayor of Easttown, which I'm currently shooting for HBO. Well, we're just completing shooting now. We were shut down because of COVID and we've just resumed about six weeks ago. Um, uh, and it's, you know, I, it, it was a sort of a natural progression of things, really. You know, I just realized that more and more, my job is very much about the entire package, you know, working with a writer, developing ideas, developing a character and other characters, getting involved in casting, you know, even, you know, using past contacts and and great relationships I have fostered over the years in terms of being able to su suggest wonderful crew members. And it just sort of naturally evolved that way, really. And, and I have to say on this particular project, it's really been great. It's been better actually I think for one of the actors to be there all the time connected to all the crew being able to check in on everyone especially because of lockdown and COVID yeah. and all the rest of it I think to have to, to, to just have that presence and be able to make sure that things are running smoothly in um, in a very hands-on way has has really been terrific so yeah so I guess that's just kind of a natural progression of things really yeah um, but going back to Ammonite, what I loved about this film was that it was so simple and beautiful. I mean, was there a point when you got the script from Frances and you're reading through it and you're like, I have to be a part of this? Yes. I mean, I felt that right away. I, it's very rare for me that I'm able to actually sit down and read an entire script in one sitting just because I, you know, I have a young family. And actually at the time that I was sent Ammonite, I was filming something else with Susan Sarandon and Sam Neill. I really was right in the middle of, of, of that. And my, my agent had called and said, listen, you just have to read this right away. It's, it's, it's really spectacular. And, and they want to shoot in four months time. And it was sort of quite unusual circumstances. And I just, I just stayed up and, and, and read till three in the morning. And I knew by the time I'd woken up the next day that there was no way I was not going to be able to play that part. I was terrified because I thought, my God, mm. how am I supposed to play Mary Anning? Um, but Francis <laughs> Lee's script was so, so spectacular. It was very still. It was very unique. Um, I really appreciated that he had created a story about two people who fall in love, that they are of the mm. same sex, is never addressed or explained in any way. It just is. It's pure and yeah. simple. It, it just is. Um, and it felt to me to be the kind of storytelling that is so crucial to the progression and the evolution of the way that audiences in the world view LGBTQ people and their relationships by telling stories that normalize and express same-sex love without hesitation or fear. And yeah. the sense of sisterhood um, between Mary and Charlotte 
um, was really how their relationship began. And that's very true of female relationships of that particular period in time. You know, so often women were married into relationships with men who were wealthy and who would take care of them. And that's that that was really a woman's only role was to be a wife and become a mother. Um, and so unless they had a, a, a husband to financially take care of them, they, they, they had subsequently nothing. And often for women, these relationships could be quite distressing because they were pulled away from their mothers, their sisters, their community, and put into completely different lives. And one of the things I was able to really embrace as a part of my research was reading letters, wonderful love letters between women who were friends um, wow. and had strong connections that sometimes did spill over into more intimate, passionate relationships that really kept them going. Very beautiful, poetic, deep connections that these women sometimes were able to find. And that was a huge source of inspiration for me in, in, in coming at playing this part and, and interpreting the relationship between Mary and Charlotte. Yeah. I mean, she's so fascinating. As soon as I saw the film, you know, who I grew up in, in the UK, so it's like, you know, we all went to the Natural History Museum. We all kind of loved dinosaurs. And everything, you know, everything she achieved sort of was like erased. Like, we don't know who she is. Um, but, and she's so fascinating. Like, what was it like diving into her life? You know, was there much, like, Oh to... yeah, there's a lot. Yes, there's 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 a lot. I mean, as you just said, though, you know, we don't know much about Mary Anning, and why is that? Well, that's because you know, <laughs> male history took over and covered mm. up all of her success. You know, Mary Anning had male scientists and historical figures whom she respected, by the way, whom she right. absolutely respected and admired herself. But she had those men come to her, pick her brain, buy her finds and claim them as their own and put their names on them. So she had her historical success and achievements completely, repeatedly covered over by rich, powerful men who quite frankly weren't as clever as she was. But Mary was very accepting of that because this was a patriarchal society. You know, that level of repression yeah. was systemic of that time. And so she just didn't know any differently. And that's one of the most remarkable things about her. She was a stoic, uncomplaining, diligent, hardworking woman who remained passionate about the job that she did until the day that she died, very sadly, of breast cancer in her yeah. late 40s. Um, yes, there was a lot to be found about Mary. Um, there is a great deal out there, not only in the history books, but a huge amount historically you can find documentation about her online. And in Lyme Regis, where we've made the film, there's an entire museum dedicated to paleontology, but enormous sections of it are, of course, entirely dedicated to Mary Anning. And they're very proud of Mary and her achievements. And they they talk about her as though she really is one of their own, which she, she was. Um, yeah. She was an utterly extraordinary, formidable figure. And to have played her and to hopefully be able to contribute to some kind of a resurgence in people being intrigued by her. But in stories like Mary's, you know, historical successes of women that have been covered over by men, you know, now is the era of women, I think, championing other women and really supporting one another and hopefully inspiring younger generations to celebrate one another as well and to come right. forward and tell their own stories, you know. Um, you know, this is how the world is going to evolve and keep changing for the better, hopefully, um, with compassion and strong leadership and stories like this one, you know, those things I think are really important, especially now. Yeah. yeah. 
How did the film challenge you as an actress? Like how, like how did it push you? Well, when I read the script, I mean, my first reaction was, I really don't know how to play this part. And, 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 you know, often that is a feeling that I will have. Um, but I really felt that with this. I just, I didn't know where to begin. You know, I'm a very physical person. I, I move mm. around a lot. I'm extremely openly affectionate with people. I'm very sort of, you know, I jump around. I mean, I just, I have that kind of energy. Mary's energy is all internal and very, very still. Um, and so that was one of the things that Francis Lee and I worked on a lot and quite consistently throughout the shoot was just actually managing my movements, you know, really not moving my hands too much, not being too animated with my facial expressions, just because that wasn't what Mary would have done. And that also really wasn't the way people were at that time. Again, this kind of repression of all things, emotions and feelings in particular, um, especially romantic feelings, you know, or public displays of affection. They were, that was absolutely something that was really not shown, um, regardless of gender. Um, and so it was, it was, it was a huge challenge and just, I think capturing, capturing the sort of loneliness around Mary, um, and the life that she lived and, and, and the hardships that she faced. I mean, I had to try and just get whatever I could for free. You know, sometimes as an yeah. actor, you look at your circumstances and you say, okay, what can I, what can I get out of this? I was very, very blessed that we were filming in Lyme Regis and truly on the beaches where Mary would have walked. And that was hugely helpful for me just in terms of creating the atmosphere and the rhythm of her um, and the physicality of her, you know, how she moved walking on those cobbly beaches and climbing up those cliffs and, you know, working into the wind and the rain um, in the way that she did. But I lived very separately to everyone else, um, to the rest of the cast and the crew, I, I, I was able to find a small cottage that was sat positioned right on a beach and the house was exposed on two sides completely to the elements and it would rattle in the wind and the rain. Mm. And sometimes the waves would be so big in the storms that the waves, uh, the water of the waves would splash the, the windows at the front of the house. And I just lived this very kind of Monday to Friday, isolated, quiet little existence. And I would, I would go to work and I would do my work and I would go home and I would put the radio on and I would sketch and I would write and I would draw and I would just try and stay in, in Mary's world as much as I could, because it was so far removed from my own quite hectic family life. Yeah. But I really, I really needed that. I just needed to put myself in a totally different headspace. Um, it just made me feel better about how I was, you know, contributing to the manifestation of this character. Um, whether any of it worked or not, I really have no idea, but it made me feel better on the day. <laughs> it, it did. It's, it's so beautiful. The silence too, with like the editing and just the way like France is shot. And of course, you know, the performances, you know, I mean, I, it still made me, you know, it still gives me like chills in the beautiful sense of like, wow, you know, um, but one thing is, you know, you stepped forward as an actress to work on the love scene between Mary and Charlotte. Why was it important to do that? Of like, we're going to choreograph this and take control. Well, I think, um, I mean, I've definitely, I've had a lot more experience than Sersha when it's come to shooting intimate scenes. And also I have played several LGBTQ roles in the past. And so I certainly felt a sense of responsibility, I think, on behalf of myself, but particularly Sersha, who's younger than me. You know, mm. she's 25. Actually, we shot those scenes on her 25th birthday. Um, and I just wanted, I wanted 
our voices to be i guess just just united really and and i also knew that you know it's quite awkward for any director and even any surrounding crew shooting films of that nature and often people people don't know how to lead people don't necessarily know how to say okay how are we going to how are we going to craft this scene today you know there's a lot of just just awkwardness sometimes around scenes of that nature. And so it just made sense. Sersha and I were the two women in the scene. Women know what yeah. women want. Let's not be about the bush. And mm. so Sersha and I knew that we could unite in our in our feelings about these characters and where they're at in the story and could tell that story physically. Um, and it was really just a, a very joyful experience honestly you know and 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 removing the heterosexual stereotypes from from the shooting of that scene because of course we are both women was yeah. was really eye opening certainly for me um it just really made me question you know how how i want to be perceived on screen and and perhaps how how i have used my voice in the past not that i've ever felt undermined or taken advantage of necessarily but how i've definitely fallen fallen very easily into those heterosexual stereotypes because experiencing what it's like when you remove those stereotypes and how it's like a breath of fresh air and everything becomes so equal and the sincerity and equality of the connection and the space for just longing and stillness you know it just went through the roof for me those feelings and um and it's something that i i really hope i can hang on to um in scenes of that nature in the future for sure yeah okay last question you talked about moving around and you you know you love doing that um i i had the virtual reality experience with baba yaga and it was brilliant um oh. what do you, what do you look for in in your projects like now what do you start it what, what yeah what do you well baba yaga was a really interesting um it was such an interesting concept to me mm. you know in the medium of virtual reality you know i'm not a huge i'm not a huge one for computer games my kids have never really been overly interested in sega mega drive or any of those kinds of things but the virtual reality headset i have to say i think is an extraordinary device and means for people to experience worlds they may never ever get to step into in particular i think about disabled people or older people we put that headset on my father who is a disabled 81 year old man and he sat in a kayak in that virtual world he sat in a kayak and i saw my father using his upper body like a young man and i said i was saying mm. god daddy Daddy, wow! How how are you doing this? He said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah. I used to I used to kayak down the River Thames as a young man. I've never forgotten. I used to be really good at it." And the pride he felt, and the sort of confidence he felt at being alone in that virtual headspace was really extraordinary. And so to wow. to give my voice to Baba Yaga in 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 that way, and to contribute to a whole other medium that is part of how the world is evolving, and and gives people these experiences that may they may never ever otherwise even come close to it's just a really joyful thing and and for me you know i just i just i just respond very instinctively to material that comes my way and um you know hope to always do things that are contributing to a wider demographic and hopefully inspirational and impactful in some way and um yeah i always i that, i i always just i don't know that's how i that's how i was raised i guess yeah. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, Ronan also tells Jazz about what it's like to have a film release in these virtual times. It's weird. It really is. I mean, it's it's gone from us doing, you know, so much prep before a film comes out and, uh, you know, flying all over the world to promote it to um, kind of just hearing every couple of weeks, oh, okay, this is what we're going to do now and we'll, we'll do an interview here or there and, um, and yeah, and, and kind of just being able to do a junker from your pyjamas from or in your pyjamas <laughs> from your living room is, is really fantastic. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is my first day now doing a, doing a Zoom junket. But, um, but, you know, I think, you know, from speaking to, to, to my publicists and um, Neon and everyone else who's been promoting their movies this year, they've, they've really had to rethink the way a film comes out completely and... Um, you know the the work that's going into essentially just rethinking how our industry is run and and everything is um is amazing so um yes i have to do less work but a lot of other people have to do a lot more work than usual <laughs> um yeah it's, it's it's very interesting having to to navigate it and figuring out how it is i mean like back in march we didn't even know what zoom was um but you know, congratulations on Ammonite. It is a beautiful, quiet film. And that's what I loved about it. But talk about getting that script, reading that for the first time. What was it about it that pulled you into it? Um, I mean, I think it's what you've just said, that it was it was very sort of quiet and intimate and simple and um the pace of it was was very gentle even um in script form and I had read it while I was shooting Little Women which is very sort of um you know action-packed and full of people and full of chatting and talking and um overlapping dialogue and things like that and um and I think I read this and and naturally was was drawn towards it and felt like it was the right thing to follow up a film like Little Women with. Um, yeah. And it was, you know, and, and knowing that it was going to be Kate that I would essentially be doing a two-hander with um, was, was very exciting for me because she's obviously wonderful and, and so, so brilliant at what she does. But... Um, I had met her, I think we did a variety thing together a few years ago um, and we met at different events and parties and things like that and, uh, you know, she's unbelievably approachable and open and has always been that way whenever I've met her. Um, So I knew the experience of working with her would only be, uh, would only be that kind of times 10 and and it was, it was great. What? research did you do into the time period I mean you know you you said you'd you were reading it during Little Women and then this was the next project you did so yeah um what research well there isn't an awful lot about Charlotte online there's Mm. a little bit more about Mary um and obviously this is sort of an imagined uh life for them it's not oh I'm so sorry hold on I'm so sorry Morning. 
sorry, you'll have to cut that out. I just got a delivery. <laughs> um, <laughs> no worries. Yeah, I'll I'll go back. Um, yeah, so you know there there wasn't a, a ton of uh, research that I could delve into about Charlotte online, and um, there was a little bit more about Mary Anning. Um, but this is a sort of imagined life for the two of them um, in in this film. So um, we kind of were given the opportunity to um, explore these characters for ourselves. And um, Francis really encouraged me. I don't know if he did with Kate. I'm sure he did. But he encouraged me to keep a diary and... Um, write as Charlotte and and essentially come up with this life for her, which we would never really delve into in the film, but it was just good for me to have. Um, But she, the real life Charlotte was actually very involved in the the world of paleontology and um, was, was a real kind of advocate for that world and, and the, the, the trailblazers within it and um and it was because of her that her husband eventually became so um involved in in that world so uh yeah so it was always it was always a, a real kind of passion of hers so there were little kind of tidbits like that that I could pick up on that I could would hopefully sort of inform what I was doing in the film yeah. And, you know, you talk about journaling and basically creating this character. I mean, you know, Francis seems so incredible in that sense, like working with the director like that. Talk about how that process helped you craft Charlotte and really get into who she, who you imagined her to be. Well, I, I just think, you know, naturally when you spend enough time either with the facts that you have about a real life person or the um, imagined worlds that that you've created for this person and them themselves, uh, you, it becomes, it gets into your bones. It becomes a part of you and you uh, dream about them and you think about them all the time. And, you know, I've, I've always sort of likened it to making a new friend. It feels very similar to that. It's such a, you know them in such a sort of intimate way because you're, you're creating them for yourself um, to enjoy. Um and and yeah and even when I say that now it's such a it's such a weird job that we have but it's such a wonderful experience to to go through and um yeah and and so yeah I just I I really I really enjoy that and then I I think having that alone time with her and then you know including Kate and Francis in that conversation about you know, their views on the women and uh, what what Kate had sort of started to discover about Mary. Um, it, it just gave it a, a fuller body, the, the whole world, so. Yeah. It sounds like it was such an empowering experience on set, like, you know, working in a dynamic like that. I mean, talk about working with Kate, especially when you're having to film, like, a love scene, which is so intimate and, you know, Kate stepped in and choreographed that like talk about that whole dynamic yeah I mean we you know Francis was really great at stepping aside and and allowing the two of us to 
to come up with the choreography ourselves for um, the, the two intimate scenes between the characters and um, and it was yeah it was it was a it was a really kind of fun experience to go through. I mean, we've both done sex scenes in the past, um, mainly with guys, um, and yeah, and I think get, getting to do it with someone that you're very very comfortable with and um, your your pals with is uh, is lovely and and it meant that we were more confident in what we were doing and we literally took out our notebooks and did a step-by-step of you know where we would place our hand or when we would nuzzle one another's neck or when we would kiss or touch one another's hair or whatever um, and it meant that when we would go on to set we could be confident in, in knowing where the scene was was going to go and um, and then on top of that we had like an entirely almost entirely female camera department as well apart from our DP so we it felt very safe and um yeah and it was and it was fun I mean I kind of I don't find those scenes but I've only ever had good experiences really but I don't find sex scenes particularly nerve-wracking because they're so technical um Mm. in a way that like kissing isn't where kissing I would get more nervous doing something like that because you're actually kissing you know someone you're not with um, yeah. and there's no kind of two ways about that whereas with this you know we've both done it before and we knew we could look at this in a very technical way and go okay this is this is a dance that we've got to come up with and um, we knew what we wanted to incorporate into these scenes and what we were excited about bringing out in these scenes so yeah it was a great experience. Yeah I love that Frances had a female crew you know, behind the camera too. Like, you know, it's so, you know, representation is so important, Um, you know. Um, So, you know, talk about how you, you know, whether you're playing Charlotte and Ammonite or Joe March or Mary Queen of Scots, you know, you're picking these incredible roles with, you know, strong women. Talk about how you're picking your roles and, you know, what your, yeah. How important that is. Yeah, how Um, important is it for you to play these women? I mean, you know, I just want to play them because I think they'll be fun to play, really. It's, Mm. I I kind of don't overcomplicate the decision-making process, you know. I've been very, very lucky that since I started doing this, um, I've had access to really great roles even for kids um and it definitely became fewer and, and further between when I was a, a kind of older teenager there weren't any roles other than you know the girlfriend or the sister um but I was also lucky that I wasn't sort of needing to earn money so I I could I could afford to take time to wait for those parts to come. And, and then when Brooklyn came, that's when that sort of changed. And I was able to sort of step into the more adult territory, adult actor territory. And, um, uh, that was a, that was a massive step for me. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's a total, it's a very kind of emotional 
response that I have to something and it's very um, instinctive and there, it, it's not, I, I don't, in, in, any, in any aspect of what I do, I try not to analyze it or dissect it too much. I just kind of feel whatever way I feel about it. And the telltale sign for me is that if I'm reading a script and I just naturally start to read the lines out loud because I, I have to say them, I know that that usually means that it's something that I, I really want to do because it's kind of impossible for me to, to just read it in my head. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, you know, the reason why you would, why I pick something anyway, if, if I'm given the chance to, to just pick it and it's not an audition or anything like that, it changes from, from job to job. I mean, one of the main reasons why I wanted to do Ammonite, apart from the fact that it was Francis and Kate, was because I had just done Joe March and I played Mary Queen of Scots and all of these um, very kind of larger than life young women. And um to be given the opportunity to play someone who had just gone through a tragedy and was sort of at the tail end of, of this personal tragedy and was feeling incredibly low and, and depressed and empty. Um, and was also, um, had very much slotted into her role in society for, for that was sort of conducive to a woman of that time from that background. Um, I hadn't really done that before. So, you know, you're, to me, you're, you're, I'm, I just want to, it's selfish, but I want it to be interesting for me because if I'm not interested in it, then I don't know if anyone else would be either. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back then. Last question. Like what was, was there a film when you were growing up that made you think, Oh, I want to do that. Like what was that first film that really stood out for you? Oh, um, I have a list and it probably won't be what you expect. But I mean, when I think back to the films that I was obsessed over, where I, I was obsessed by when I was younger, it was like, it was Titanic. Um, the drama of that. Um, Sister Act. <laughs> Dirty Dancing. <laughs> Um, then later on bridesmaids and I realized I was like oh my god so many of these have like just a gang of women like having a good time <laughs> um, and um, apart from Jodie Johnson which is just so romantic and it's definitely about a girl and a boy but um, but but yeah I you know the, these were the movies and also there's there's a UK show that you might know about called Tracy Beaker which was around when I was a kid and it's a yes. Jacqueline Wilson book and I was obsessed with her and again she was this like little outcast she was a little brat you know she was I, I really do think that Tracy Beaker was like way ahead of its time and um, I loved like Pippi Longstockings as well like all of these girls that were just a bit wild and um you know, and naturally, especially being an only child as well, in order to entertain myself, I would just pretend to be them. So really my <laughs> my <laughs> relationship to work has not changed that much <laughs> at all. I'm just like, I just need to keep myself occupied so I'll play this role. Um, and yeah, and, and that, that is kind of the blessing of starting to do something like this when you're young is that once you can hold on to it, there's a very, you have a very like pure relationship to what you do, you know, and it's, it's not overly complicated and, um, and you can kind of allow it to be that. So 
yeah so it's just always got to be fun really I love that list and as an only child there was something about Tracy Beaker I remember and I love Tracy and Pippi Longstocking that's an incredible list I have to say (laughs) well good I mean it's not Citizen Kane but you know it's my (laughs) Citizen Kane (laughs) Ammonite is slated to hit select theaters on November 13th And that's it for this edition of Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Preston Northup edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Awards Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head over to Variety.com and click on the Awards Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions in key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Clayton Davis, Jazz Tankay, and Michael Schneider, I'm Janelle Riley. We'll see you on the circuit. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.